We've been uh, working our way through, actually we began a series last uh, Sunday on the, the delights of God, uh, and uh, we're going to be continuing uh, to think about and talk about that today and over the next several weeks. This morning we want to, to look at creation and uh, consider the way in which God takes great pleasure and delight uh, in his creation. I had a one of those, um, uh, I hate to use the word rare, but unfortunately it is a rare experience a couple of months ago as I was driving by myself up to Stanley on an early Sunday morning. I uh, left the house about 7.30 in the morning, and it was very overcast here in Boise. And as I climbed the hill uh, to Horseshoe Bend, I uh, found myself getting up to the top of the hill and just amazed at what I saw. The, the sun was just beginning to, to peak over the mountaintops. Uh, as I said, it was overcast, and there were clouds that were hanging, or so it, it appeared, just hanging above this little town of Horseshoe Bend, above this little valley. Uh, just exquisite. They were casting shadows on the mountains. Uh, there was uh, still a little dew on the, uh, on the ground. And as I found myself uh, observing this, it was as if I had seen it for the first time, though I've, I've taken that route a hundred times before. And I was moved to worship as I saw what God had created. I was drawn uh, into a relationship with him and, and just spent the next hour or so as I was driving along beside the Payette River, talking to the Lord, praising him, worshiping him, just enjoying his beauty which was a, a reminder to me of, of his presence and his goodness. That's what we want to consider this morning. Uh, I want to, uh, to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to take a very uh, cursory look at uh, Genesis chapter 1. We won't be doing a, a real in-depth, verse-by-verse uh, study in this chapter. This uh, chapter will really be somewhat of a springboard into a number of other passages uh, in the Old Testament uh, that uh, I hope will be used by the Lord to, to broaden your perspective, to open your eyes as my eyes have, have uh, been opened and, and are opening wider these last few weeks as I've thought about uh, this God that we, uh, that we worship Begin reading in verse 1 of uh, Genesis 1. Familiar statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the beginning that the uh, writer is speaking of here is the beginning of the created world. And the heavens and the earth is a figure of speech. It's a merism that's used to, to describe the totality of the universe. God created it. And... When he created it, the earth became formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Verses 1 and 2 are simply a summary statement of all that that is included in the rest of the chapter. This is a a summary of what God did. And in verse 2 it says that when he began to create... What he created was first formless and void. In other words, 
there were just a lot of loose atoms flying around as God began to, to put this together. The word formless, uh, actually the phrase formless and void in Hebrew is uh, the, the phrase uh, tohu bavohu. And uh, the, the word formless literally means a wasteland, uh, a place without shape and without order, uh, void of, of, uh, of any material content. Uh, I liken it to uh, the bedroom of my seven-year-old. It's, uh, it's not that rare that I can walk into his room and find uh, tohu vabohu scattered all over the room. Now, the difference, the analogy breaks down somewhat, is that the parts that I see on, on his bedroom floor have form and they have substance. They're usually little pieces of Legos that uh, are scattered and strewn about. Uh, but what God had to work with when he began to create matter was in the beginning, formless. It had no shape. It had no substance. It had no, uh, no form to it. And it, it had a very uh, stark absence of, uh, of use. The phrase, um, moving over the surface of the waters, uh, is used in uh, Deuteronomy 32 to describe what a mother eagle does as she, uh, as she hovers above her little eaglets with great concern. And and the word picture here suggests that God was there looking at what he was about to create with this formless substance that he had created and exercising great concern and care, a very specific plan in mind. And what follows in, in the rest of the chapter are six parallel sections or paragraphs, each beginning with the phrase, Then God said, and ending with the statement, And there was evening and there was mourning. And as we read through uh, verses 3 through 31, I want you to notice the parallel between the first three days of creation, days 1 through 3, and the last three days, days 4 through 6. There's a, a striking similarity between the two. Light is created in verse 1 as an unformed substance. Lights, namely the heavenly bodies, are created in, uh, in day 4. As a uh, uh, as an, a material entity, and what I'd like to suggest is that in the first three days, God forms the formless. That is to say, He organizes the chaos. And in days four through six, He begins to put it all together and to fill up the void or to fill up the emptiness. Listen carefully as the drama unfolds. Verse three. Then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse or a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called this expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning a second day. This expanse uh, is what the Israelites referred to as the, uh, the place of the canopy. In the heavens or in the sky, they supposed that there was some canopy holding the waters above from the seas below. And the canopy was released so 
so legend uh, suggests when the floods came in uh, Genesis 6. Verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, and with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a third day. In uh, verses 11 and 12, this phrase, uh, seed after their kind, uh, appears actually the, uh, three times. Actually, the, the phrase after their kind or after its kind occurs ten times in this chapter. And uh, to my thinking is probably one of the strongest arguments against the evolutionary theory, which suggests that mutations from one biological division uh, to another occurred. The Lord says that these things were created to uh, reproduce after their kind. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, um, obviously one of the most striking verses in this chapter is, is verse 26, where God speaks to himself, speaking to uh, the Son and the Spirit. He says, let us make man in our image. A man becomes the apex or the crown of all the created order. And yet, man's uniqueness is much more than simply being given vice regency over the earth. He's made in God's image. That is to say, he's, he's made with the capacity to know, to worship, and to love his creator. Now, was all this created in six 24-hour days? I don't know. I'll leave that one up to you and, and uh, others to, to figure out. Frankly, the text is unclear. The, uh, the original language uh, really suggests two alternatives, either that, that Moses, in, in recording this creation narrative, is recording that uh, creation itself occurred uh, at God's hand during, a six, during six 24-hour periods, or the language can suggest that these six days were revelatory days. That is, that it took God six days to reveal to Moses or to whomever received this revelation that this is how it was created. Either way, and, and I, don't, I don't think we want to uh, get stuck on that point, but either way, the main point seems to be very, very clear. God spoke creation into existence. There's no mention of a Big Bang there's no mention of spontaneous generation. God created it all. And what I want you to observe is that as he was creating, he assessed his work. Six times in this passage, verses 4, 12, 18, 21, 25, and finally in verse 31, God steps back, if you will, and looks at what he created, and he says, this is good. This is good. That word has lost its meaning in, uh, in our day. Things are, are no longer simply good. Good is one of those qualitative adjectives that, that doesn't describe a whole lot anymore. Um, when I sit down at the supper table and Cherry asks, how do you like the dinner? There's a, a, a stark difference between her response if I say, this is wonderful, honey. Or if I say, this is good. And, and we even invent words. Things are, are stupendous. Things are, uh, are colossal. Things are more than good. And yet, good, as described in the scripture, is, is, uh, is the best there is. It's the best there is. Um, I've been avoiding a job at home for the last uh, three or four months. It's, it's been on the list of things to do. It was cleaning the garage. 
And uh, I have to tell you that when weekends come, the last thing I want to do is clean the garage. In fact, during the week, the last thing I want to do is clean the garage. And yet, uh, Cherry's been uh, reminding me that it needs to be done, and and, uh, her parents came to town last weekend. And and, uh, I finally relented and uh, decided uh, that I would help. And with the help of the whole clan, we got out there, and we spent about four or five hours uh, organizing and cleaning and finding things that we had no idea even existed. I mean, I found tools that I didn't even know I owned. I still don't know what they're for. So if someone can help me with that, I'd appreciate it. But whatever they're for, they're all neatly arranged on the pegboard now. And when it was, when the job was done, I stepped back and I said, this is good. But you know what? I didn't say this is good because it brought delight or pleasure to my heart. I stepped back and said, this is good, because what I meant was, this job's finally finished. I get to cross it off the list of things to do now. And you see, the Lord didn't look at his creation and say, it's finished. He looked at his creation and he said, it is good. And the word literally means pleasant, favorable, delightful, delicious, sweet, and savory. Now, I had an experience that was good a couple of months ago. My son came to me and and said, Dad, I want to learn to ride without my training wheels. He was six at the time. and Other little lads on the block were riding two-wheelers, and he decided it was time to do it too. So we went out in the garage and We looked and looked and looked for a wrench. (laughs) We finally found one, and we got the training wheels off, and and then we took his bike to the, the, uh, the street out in front, sort of a quiet country neighborhood. And for the next hour or so, we worked with his dogged determination to get him up and to get him going on this two-wheeler. And the instructions were very simple. Try to stay balanced. Try to stay centered. Look straight ahead. And pedal as fast as you can. (laughs) We didn't talk about turning. We didn't talk about stopping. We just kept it simple. Stay centered, look ahead, and pedal as fast as you can. And I held on to the seat, and I ran along behind him as fast as I could. And then I'd let go, and and he'd, he'd keep going for about two feet or three feet, and then he'd wipe out. But he didn't... uh, he didn't get discouraged. He wanted to get back on and keep riding again, so we'd, we'd get him back on and we'd do it again. And finally, after about an hour of this, he finally had it. And there was that one experience of letting go of the seat and watching him go for about 150 feet, 200 feet, 250 feet. And I tell you, I was pumped. I was excited. Neighbors were looking... But I didn't care. I didn't care what they heard. Go for it, David. You can do it. I was so excited. Keep going, son. Keep going. I mean, he was headed for the highway. He didn't know how to stop, but I was pumped. I felt somewhat like uh, Steve Martin in that film Parenthood at the end of his son's baseball game when he finally catches the ball 
and Steve Martin starts to dance, and he doesn't care who sees it. I was pumped. And you know what? That's what I think God was like. That's how I think God responded when he looked at at his creation, when he looked at what he had put together and said, It is good. This is awesome. I want to ask the question and, 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 and try to answer it. Why is God's creation good? What does God find delightful or pleasurable or savory in it? And I want to suggest that there are five reasons that God delights in his creation. And this is where we're going to go to other portions of, of the Old Testament. And these, these five reasons overlap. They can't be separated entirely. The first, the first is simply this. God rejoices and delights in his works because they express his glory. They express his glory. David in Psalm 19 wrote, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You see, the one message of creation, the one message that creation has for man is the glory of God. By God's glory, I mean that it reveals his nature. It reveals his character. It shows us who he is. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, writes this. The glory of creation and the glory of God are as different as the love poem and the love, as different as the painting and the landscape, as different as the ring and the marriage. It would be a great folly and a great tragedy if a man loved his wedding band more than he loved his bride. But that is what Romans 1 says has happened. Human beings have fallen in love with the echo of God's excellency in creation and lost the ability to hear the incomparable original shout of his love. Do you hear what he's saying? Isn't that what's happening all around us today? Don't you see this? People hugging trees. People loving whales and spotted owls. People so enamored by creation and yet have lost sight of the creator. Paul, the apostle, explained it this way in Romans 1. He said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they, that is us, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. But you see, there is a great God of glory and power and generosity behind this awesome universe that we see around us. 
and we belong to him. You see, creation itself is calling us to acknowledge his presence, to acknowledge the fact that he's the one who sustains us, and calling us to place our hope and our delight in him rather than in his handiwork. As David in in Psalm 19 says, day to day and night to night, creation speaks of his glory. That's the first reason. The second reason that God rejoices in creation is that creation itself praises him. Turn Turn to Psalm 148. Psalm 148, uh, beginning in verse 3. And notice who the psalmist is talking to. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded that they were created. Look at verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps. What in the world is the psalmist referring to? What is he saying? Is he saying that creation itself is the vehicle through which God gets praise because we look at at creation and are drawn to him? Well, that's clearly what Paul's saying in, in Romans 1. But here the psalmist is exhorting creation to praise God. Look at verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and and you deeps. What what human being is is at the bottom of the sea? There's Lloyd Bridges, uh, Jacques Cousteau, Charlie Tuna. What's down there to praise him? Listen to what questions God asks of Job. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the hinds. You hear what God is asking Job? What's he suggesting? Well, he's suggesting that God alone sees the depths of the sea. God alone brings rain in the desert where no man in is, and he alone watches like a midwife at the birth of every mountain goat and every wild deer. We've all heard the age-old question, if, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there, does it make a sound? Well, if I understand what God is saying to Job correctly, the answer is yes. It makes a sound. And yes, there is someone there. God himself sees. God himself is concerned. Now, I'm, I'm no... Um, I'm no biologist or botanist or astronomer, and so I have to, to apologize uh, for some of the illustrations that I want to use this morning to, to open your eyes to God's creation. I'm, I'm simply a layman when it comes to those fields. But 
Consider with me, if you will, the European water spider. I, I ran across him this past week. He lives at the bottom of a lake, and yet he breathes air. And he comes to the top of the water, and he does a somersault on the surface, and he catches a bubble of air. And then he holds the bubble over the breathing holes in the middle of his body while he swims to the bottom of the lake and spins a silk web among the seaweed. And then he goes up and brings down bubble after bubble until a little balloon of air is formed under its silk web where he can live and eat and mate. You, you will have one of two responses to that illustration. You will either go, wow, that's amazing. Or you'll say, who cares? <laughs> who cares about a little European water spider? And I want to tell you that if your response is the latter, God cares. And he sees. And he knows. And he receives praise from this little European water spider, even though we don't see it, simply because it's doing what he created it to do. See, the psalmist has no idea what lives in the deeps of the seas. He hasn't been there. And yet God's creation praises him by simply being what he created it to be. It was not only created for us and for our enjoyment and to help lead us to God, but it was created for him and for his pleasure. God's a connoisseur of his creation. There's a third reason that God delights in creation. He rejoices in the works of creation because they reveal his incomparable wisdom. Turn to Psalm 104. You, you read it earlier or uh, had it read to you by Susie earlier. Psalm 104, which is a psalm of praise for God and all that God has done. Verse 24, the psalmist writes, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. What the psalmist is, is saying here is that the universe is a masterpiece of God's wisdom and of God's order. Consider the human brain. Who understands it? Now, you can talk to physicians who will tell you quite a lot about it, but they don't understand it completely. Last night as we were driving home from dinner, my 10-year-old made this comment that just sort of came out of nowhere. I wasn't sure what she was referring to or what, uh, what sort of precipitated this, but she said, you know, Dad... The brain, the, the, the brain can play tricks on you. Oh, really, Laura? What, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, let's say you've got an itch over here on your left leg near your knee. Your brain tells you to scratch it, doesn't it? Yeah. She says, but sometimes when I get there and start scratching, that's not where I itch. <laughs> You've had that experience, haven't you? It's true. The brain tells you to go and scratch in a certain place, and when you get there, it's not the right place. Who can understand it other than God? 
When you go camping this summer and you find yourself drawing water out of a lake to drink, I want you to consider this. <laughs> Did you know that there are 10,000 known species of diatoms? A diatom is a single-celled algae. And that in a teaspoon of ordinary lake water, there may be up to a million of these tiny, invisible plants. That'll encourage you to boil your water before you drink it next time you go camping. Now, a, a biologist would, would tell us that, that these little uh, diatoms are there creating oxygen for the animals in the lake to breathe so that they can live. And that's true. But I want to also suggest that these little diatoms are there because they entertain God. He is delighted by their microscopic beauty. You see, the world is full of the wisdom of God. The psalmist writes in verse 14 of of Psalm 104, You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And what we need to do is we need to underscore or underline in our Bibles that phrase, you cause, in verse 14. Because the problem that we moderns have is is that we have so many explanations for what occurs around us. You look out, as I do, the, the back window of your house and you see your garden and you realize that, that the plants are there because of what you have done, right? You tilled the soil, you planted, perhaps you fertilized, you've watered, you've weeded, and you look at it and say, this is the work of my hand. Or so we're tempted to do. And yet the psalmist says, God causes grass to grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate. You see, we have, a, we have a, a share in the job. We get to cultivate them. But God is the one who causes the growth. It's by God's wisdom that everything we see exists. How that we would marvel if we could look at creation as though we were looking at it for the first time. That's what I experienced as I climbed the hill of Horseshoe Bend. Now, I'd I'd seen it a hundred times before, but on that particular morning, it was as if I was seeing it for the first time. I was dumbfounded. I was awestruck. Would that we could look at, at all that's around us as though we were looking at it for the first time. We would see, we would recognize that God is truly behind creation, that he's the source and the sustainer of it. There's a fourth reason that God delights in in the work of his hands, and, and that's because creation reveals his incomparable power. Reveals his incomparable power. Isaiah found himself looking up into to heavens, into the heavens, and he wrote these words. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might 
And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Not one of them is missing. Now, if Isaiah was stunned at the power of God to create and to name and to sustain the stars in the sky that he could see in his day, can imagine what Isaiah's worship might be if, if he could look through the Hubble telescope today to see that the, the stars he saw in his night sky were, were but a tiny patch of our galaxy, which has in it a hundred billion stars. And beyond our galaxy, there are millions of other galaxies. John Piper, in, in, his, uh, in his book that I referred to earlier, writes this, It seems in these days that God is enjoying keeping the astronomers on, e- on the edge of their seats with new glimpses of his power. In the fall of 1989, newspapers reported the discovery by two Harvard astronomers of a great wall of galaxies stretching hundreds of millions of light years across the known universe. The wall is is supposedly some 500 million light years long, 200 million light years wide, and 15 million light years thick. In case you've forgotten your high school astronomy, a light year is a little less than 6 trillion miles. And this great wall, Piper writes, consists of more than 15,000 galaxies, each with millions of stars and was described as the single largest coherent structure seen so far in nature. I say was described because three months later in February of 1990, God opened another little window for tiny man to marvel again. And the newspapers reported that astronomers have have discovered more than a dozen evenly distributed clumps of galaxies stretching across vast expanses of the heavens, suggesting a structure to the universe that is so regular and immense that it defies current theories of cosmic origins. The newly found pattern of galactic matter dwarfs the extremely long sheet of galaxies dubbed the Great Wall. Now they say that the Great Wall is in fact merely one of the closest of these clumps or regions that contain very high concentrations of galaxies. Do you ever find yourself wondering, is is God big enough to know my concerns? Is God powerful enough to hear my prayer? to take notice of of what's going on in my life, of how my heart is hurting? Isaiah would answer that question, just look up. Look up at the stars. God has them each named, just as he has the, as, as Jesus put it, just as he has the hair on each of our heads named and numbered. God is powerful enough, and his creation reveals his incomparable power. Finally, there's a last reason that God is delighted and takes great pleasure in his creation. And it's because his creation points us beyond itself back to him. Creation points us to God. See, God means for us to be stunned by his creation. He means for us to be 
to be caught up in awe by it, but not for its own sake. He means for us to look at his creation and to say, Wow! Yes! If this is, if this is the mere work of his fingers, as David suggests in Psalm 8, then what must this God be really like? You see, if we stop with the wonder and the awe of creation itself, our hearts aren't satisfied. You may be concerned about trees. You may be concerned about owls. You may be concerned about whales, and there's nothing wrong with that. But none of those things will satisfy the heart and the human soul. God alone is the soul's end. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our soul can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. These are but shadows, but God is a substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. And that's why the psalmist ends as he does in Psalm 104. Look at verse 31 and following. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks at the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. You see, in the end, it won't be the seas, it won't be the mountains, the canyons, it won't be the European water spider or the clouds that hang above Horseshoe Bend. It won't be the great galaxies that fill our hearts to breaking with wonder or to fill our mouths with praise for him. It'll be God himself. For he alone satisfies our souls. He alone is worthy of our awe and our worship. Let's pray. Father, we we often think that we're so clever. We're often enamored by what we can do. We're too easily satisfied by the explanations that are given to us for for all that we can see. And regrettably, Lord, we lose sight of your awesomeness and of your power. And here in the great Northwest, we seem to be so familiar with these beautiful mountains and trees that, that we take them for granted But more importantly, we take for granted the the God who lies behind them, who sustains them and us. Lord, we are but a, a tiny part of your creation. 
albeit the crown of your creation, we are, are simply man. You are God, the God of the universe. And Lord, we want to remember that. We want to confess today our own smallness, our own weakness and inadequacy. And we want to confess your greatness, your power, the wonder. We want to stand in awe of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.